Now, this podcast is going to be a little different than our normal podcast. I am actually at home recording, so if you hear any pitter-patter, those are little feet running upstairs above me, but we did not get a clean recording on Sunday, and I wanted to go back through the tech so we could have it for all of those volunteers who missed the service and everyone who was out of town and people who wanted to go back and listen to the sermon for this week. So we are in the middle of a series of case studies on the seven deadly sins, and we've come this week to the sin of lust. And if you've been following along, you know that each week we've been picking out a song from popular culture that illustrates or embodies the the sin of the week. And I knew when we started this that the sin I was most nervous about was the sin of lust. I mean, if you want to get yourself in trouble really quick, you can do a Google search for songs on lust. And so there is no shortage of songs we could use um, for this week. Now, the problem is, would any of them actually be appropriate? And I was... Um, if you're if you're keeping score at home, I was intrigued that that probably the most requested song, uh, or one that was given as as a possible illustration was a certain Sir Mix-a-Lot uh, song from the early '90s. But none of those songs would be appropriate to play in church, and so I started thinking, well, maybe we're I'm actually going at this from the wrong angle. So since every sin is actually a or every one of these these vices is one of God's good gifts that Satan has has taken and is distorting and twisting. What if we could find a sin or a song rather that illustrates not so much what lust is? Plenty of songs will do that. But are there any songs that embody and illustrate what real love is? And as I began to think about that, there was just one song that kept coming to mind. So here's a clip now. I thought I I couldn't, you can't go wrong with Etta, so I didn't think she would get me in too much trouble, but that illustrates what real love is. But our case study this morning illustrates what real love is not. And for this story, you know, this case study is something that even though this story is about 4,000 years old, it's something that could have come straight out of the evening news from last night. It is a story of sexual victimization. It's the sadly too familiar tale of someone who is using their power to sexually exploit a vulnerable underage person in their charge. And then the victim, the victim is falsely accused, blamed, and shamed. It is the victim who is shunned. The victim is slandered and eventually punished by an act of injustice. And over the past few years, similar tales of 
sexual assault and abuse have filled the airwaves and taken over our headlines. More and more stories and more and more victims have continue, continue to come forward, and there's no doubt these stories are only scratching the surface. And when you look into the numbers and the scale of things like sexual abuse, it's just staggering. You know, there's an organization called GRACE, which is an acronym for Godly Response to Abuse in Christian Environments. And it's a ministry dedicated to helping churches prevent and heal sexual abuse victims. But they estimate that one in four girls and one in six boys will be sexually abused by the time they're 18. This is staggering. And then over the last few years of the Me Too movement and then the Church Too movement, you have continual sex scandals in the largest Christian denomination in the world, the Roman Catholic Church, and then Recently, findings in the largest denomination in America, the Southern Baptist Convention, tales of scandal and cover-up. And these places that should be safe places for healing, and they're not. And so they've caused many people to do soul-searching. And there's no doubt that many of those men and women who have been affected by these issues will sit silently in churches all across the country, every single week. You know, some of them are weary. Some are healing. Some have attempted to put the past in their past, and some are confident they never will. Some are plagued by memories of shame, memories of guilt, memories of fear. Some are wondering if they are worthy to be beloved. And some are wondering if the gospel is powerful enough to heal their wounds and dispel the incessant shadow that seems to follow them everywhere they go. And of course, even if you're not, if, you've, if you're blessed and you're not have been personally the victim of sexual abuse, this sin touches us all. I mean, the sin of lust. We actually live in a world where just the atmospheric poison that sexual sin unleashes is a smog that none of us can evade. You know, I'm from Atlanta, which is Smogsville, USA, and my cousin who ran cross-country at Georgia Tech used to joke that uh, running three miles in downtown Atlanta is the equivalent of smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. Now, I don't know if that's actually, like, factually true, but you get the point he was making and possibly trying to get out of practice with. But I remember the first time I went out west and got off the plane in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and took this kind of breath and <laughs> I didn't know something was like happening to my lungs. I felt like these little needles were piercing into my soul. I was like, what, what is that? I think I'm going to die. And then it dawned on me that I think that's what oxygen feels like. <laughs> that's just clean air. And we, we live 
in a smog-infested world where the atmospheric poison from sexual sins is everywhere. And so what we need is we need to step into the biblical world and we need the power of the Holy Spirit to blow so that the, that, that, that spiritual wind can, can breathe fresh, clean air into our lives. And so we're going to look this morning at the study of Joseph from Genesis chapter 39. So if you want to follow along or listen as we walk through this story. So Genesis chapter 39 is structured. So Moses will give you verses 1 through 6. So we'll kind of set the stage for the story. And then verses 20 through 23 will wrap up the story and give you the central point of it. And then 7 through 19 is the actual story. So let's start with verses 1 through 6. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. But the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his, his Egyptian master, and his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And so Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house, and he put him in charge of all that he had. And from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessings of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and in appearance. Now, a couple things to keep in mind. Joseph is 17 years old when this story takes place. That's when he was sold into slavery. And some of the shocks of this story, one is that it's stereotype busting. It presents the, the, the male is the victim and the female is the perpetrator. But really, one of the deeper shocks is the shock that the Moses goes out of his way to tell you that even in the midst of Joseph's trials, the Lord was with him. And that's the, the question. Where is God when we suffer? Where is he when we are wounded? Where is he when we are falsely accused? And Joseph, up until this point, had lived a charmed life. He was the beautiful and beloved son. He was the, the, the favorite in the favored family. He was born to the favorite wife. He had been protected. He had been pampered all of his days. And already, you can see in his life at this point, at 17, his life is beginning to be shattered by the seven deadly sins. We could have done a case study just on li Joseph's life as uh, his own pride and then the neglectful sloth of the father, then the envy and greed, and then the anger of the brothers and all of this. And now the lust from Potiphar's wife, all of this is uh, coming upon him. But one of the things that Moses wants you to see is that Joseph actually embodies the Abrahamic blessing to the nations. So Potiphar is blessed because Joseph is there. He is in a pagan land with a pagan master in a pagan house, and all of them are blessed because he's there. But in the introduction and the conclusion five times, Moses will remind us, God was with him. God was with him. 
God was with him. So don't miss the point that when life gets hard and things are not turning out the way you had hoped, and this wonderful plan and these dreams that you had for your life, even if they were God-given dreams like Joseph's, and it seems like they're being derailed, do not believe that God is not with you. So do you feel sidetracked? You know, what is God doing? This is not the plan. Joseph could have asked that every step of his life from about this point when he's 17 to when he's about 44. And yet, God is with him. All right, so let's a couple other things to notice. Potiphar, who is he? He's the captain of the guard. He is only named here than everywhere else after this section. It's master. Some of the key words, all, hand, house, blessings. And then you can see that ominous turn in verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. In face and figure, literally says, just like his mother, just like Rachel, exact same. So he had the misfortune of being born beautiful. And so now let's watch how that um, attacks. And as we take lust as a case study, the way we're going to break it down, we're going to follow along in kind of four movements. And we're going to see how lust hunts and how lust hates. Because there's two key characters in the story. There's the, the, the predator, the sexual aggressor, and then there's the victim, Joseph. And so for the predator, the aggressor, we're going to see how lust hunts and how lust hates. And then for Joseph, we're going to see how lust is handled and then lust is healed. So let's start. Let's look at the story and see how lust hunts. Follow along, starting in verse 7. After a time, his master's wife cast her eye on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in his house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and he fled and he got out of the house. But as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household. So we'll pause right there. First, let's look at how lust hunts. See, there's two things that she does. First, she sees him and then she stalks. She knows how first she sees. Verse 7 says that she fixed her eyes upon him. She cast her gaze upon him. She, this, is, this is meditation language. She's taking him all in. She's contemplating his beauty. See, she sees him as property, not a person. As an object, as a thing. And then notice what she does. This All English translations euphemize this. She gives a two-word direct command. It's only two words. We translate it, lie with me. That's not what it says. It's much more vulgar, and there is no um, question about what she's asking. She is not requesting. She's commanding. And then he rejects it. He turns her way, and then now she goes on the hunt. She starts to stalk. Notice what it says in verse 10. She spoke to Joseph day after day. I wonder what she said. What do you think she said? See, her strategy was to set up a situation where 
the adultery would be natural and it would be easy. And I wonder if she looked at Joseph and thought, Oh, you poor little country bumpkin, you sweet little cute Hebrew thing you. You don't understand the world. Come with me into this rarefied air. Listen, you are in Egypt now, baby. This is the capital of the world. This is Cairo, the city of kings. You are in high-class Egyptian society. And if you want the luxury and the life you see, you've got to pay the price. I wonder if she pitied him and said, Oh, this poor little country bumpkin doesn't know the, the way the world works. I wonder what she said as she, day by day, but knows how she changes her strategy. It was to lie beside her or just be with her. So she's trying to set up a situation. Now, the next thing I want you to see now, what we need to see there is that's that's lust how it hunts it sees and then it stalks but then notice the next thing is how it hates see she doesn't love him she only wants to use him because once the object of her desire is out of her grasp she turns murderous but until then i think you know she might have sung you know your body is a wonderland Joseph, your body is a place for me to explore, a place for me to find my amusement and my excitement and then leave. See, the song that lust sings is always a song of selfish exploitation. It is so unlike the Holy Spirit song that doesn't sing your body is a wonderland, but your body is my temple. And that's the question. Are our bodies sacred spaces or are they places for cheap thrills? See, her lust is like a fire that first is going to burn her down, but notice how it nearly burns down the whole house because this is a smog that everybody gets contaminated with. And then her two speeches here are just staggering in how power-hungry and manipulative and taking no thought to the wreckage that she's going to leave behind. This is how perpetrators talk. And it's her lust now that's going to poison the whole house. First, listen to how she tries to rally public opinion behind her. She comes to the men of the household. Now, it's intriguing. I wonder why she doesn't go to the women. She comes to the men. And these are the other male slaves. They're the men of the house. And then she wants to public shame him. And notice she has a three-way smear campaign. Three people she's going to attack or a kind of a three-pronged strategy. The first is notice how she goes after Potiphar. See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and he fled and he got out of the house. So first she knows how she blames Potiphar and she disrespects him. She just calls him he, not your master, not my husband, but he. In a shame and honor culture, this would have been disgraceful, but he is to blame. It's the man there. It's his fault. And then notice how she smears Joseph, that Hebrew. He's a foreigner. And she's going to play to their prejudices. And they're already, you know, they're already jealous because of his rise. Here's this young, 
good-looking, successful foreigner who comes in and now gets elevated above all of them in the house, and they would need no encouragement to hate him. I knew it. That little punk. Let's get him. And then notice the third thing she does is she claims that we're all victims. He came in to laugh at us. We're all victims now. His rise is an insult to all of you. He's exploiting you. And then she uses this shrewd, vulgar language with devil meaning that couldn't mean one thing, couldn't mean another. He came into me. And it's just this remarkable um, it's this r- remarkably twisted way to shape people's perception of who he is. Then in verse 16, Then she laid out his garment by her until her master came home. She carefully lays out his garment as evidence. And unfortunately for Joseph, this is the second time that one of his garments is going to be used as evidence against injustices committed against him. So his beautiful coat, coat of many colors, was stripped off him and dipped in blood to as evidence of his murder, and then now this is evidence from his accuser. And then notice how she speaks to her husband, Potiphar, once he gets home, and says, And she laid up his garment by her until her master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew slave whom you brought among us, he came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. And so what? it's interesting how she shifts her communication, how she changes the story ever so slightly, but she doesn't use... The word, no, she doesn't use the word slave uh, with the slaves because she knew that would make them angry. But she does use it with Potiphar. She said, the Hebrew slave, the servant whom you have brought among us. And so she's casting blame on him. This is your fault. This is what you have done. She's throwing it back into his face. And then Robert Alter, the great uh, Hebrew translator, said, verse 19, there's this odd construction where she uses this phrase, this is the way your servant has treated me. It's very strange. It's almost like she's doing some type of physical gesture to say, this is what he did to me. And the whole point is to try and stoke the fires of his jealousy. She wants to make him angry. And it works. One of the interesting things to think about is, I wonder, does Potiphar know? Because this is a capital offense. If a slave sexually accosts the master's wife, they die on the spot. There is no trial by jury. There is no innocent until proven guilty. There is no um, investigation. And yet, Potiphar doesn't kill him on the spot. So it does make you wonder if he really doubted. Did he really believe her? But he's been publicly shamed and humiliated, so he has to do something. And so he throws him in prison. And her character and her conduct is this remarkable picture that gives for us an anatomy of a sexual predator. But the sad thing is everyone in the house is stained. 
The smoke from her fire is choking everyone. So now let's shift gears and let's think for a couple minutes on, all right, how is lust handled? So now let's look not from the perspective of Potiphar's wife, but from from the perspective of Joseph. And there's a couple things that he does to handle uh, lust. Uh, It's fascinating that she gives two words, lie with me. And then in verse eight, his response is this 35 words. It's very intentionally, uh, it's, it's kind of hard to translate. It's almost, um, it's almost like Moses is trying to paint a picture of a 17 year old boy who's scared and has no idea what to say. And he just fumbles out this response. And he tries negotiating, but that doesn't work. Eventually, she's going to seize him. But what's intriguing to me is notice how Joseph is not looking for this. And it blindsides him. And this is one reason why lust can be so dangerous. You know, as Bruce Lee said, it's the punch you don't see coming that can really hurt you. And Joseph is thrown into a fight that he didn't pick. He is thrown into a a fight he didn't start. And this is how lust can work. You can, in an instant, be thrown into a fight that you weren't looking for. So you're simply watching television, watching March Madness, and all of a sudden, boom, some image comes up, some commercial, and and you weren't looking for that. Or you can be searching on the internet for one thing, and then boom, out of nowhere, uh, something can come up. And all of a sudden, you're in a battle you didn't start. Or you could be at the grocery store, and all you want to do is go in and buy your you know, lemon berry gluten-free hummus, and you're just standing in line with your apple cider vinegar chips and, and some charming young man about half your age smiles and says it must be the apple cider that's keeping your complexion so radiant. And you smile back and you start to chat and there's a flutter in your heart. And then you walk out to your car and in the back of your mind, you think, hmm, I still got it. And it might be worth thinking, what is it that you still have? And is that something you actually want? But whether you like it or not, you've been thrust into a battle that you weren't looking for. And this is how lust is. And in one sense, um, it's not wrong to be thrust in a battle you weren't looking for, but it is wrong to linger there. And, uh, you know, Martin Luther said, it's not a sin for a bird to fly over your head, but it is a sin if you let him build a nest in your hair. And so that's the way lust is. Often we get pushed into a battle we weren't fighting, but the real question is then how do we respond? And so Joseph, in that situation, he responds by getting out. He ran. Uh, He got out of the room. And for us, many times, that is the first step. You have to turn away. You have to shut down the conversation. You have to put up covenant eyes. You have to put the computer in a public space. You have to delete the app. You have to do whatever it takes to get out. You have to remove yourself from the way of temptation. But removing yourself from the way of temptation is not enough. Notice what he also does. He has to remember. Remove yourself from temptation, but remember who's watching. Love in verse 9, how he says, how can I do this, uh, this, you know, indiscretion? 
How could I make this momentary lapse in judgment? How could I make this small, minor, not really big, big of a deal mistake? No. He says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin? Notice who the sin's against. Sin against God. Not, and sin against you, sin against my master, sin against myself, sin against my fellow people, sin against my future wife. It's how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He recognizes that the choice is pretty plain. He can please his employer and offend his God, or he can offend his employer and please his God. But he can't do both. And for Joseph, his greatest defense, and for you and I, our greatest defense against lust will be to have a greater desire. His greatest defense is his greatest desire, is that his greatest desire is to please the Lord. Having a heart that wants to please God more than please himself or please others. See, as long as he he tries his best to stay away from the temptation, but ultimately that is not enough. The greatest defense is to have a greater desire. And the great thing for Joseph is he recognizes that God is with me. And see, if you're going to have, if you're going to fight lust well, you need to be given a new heart with new desires. Augustine, the 4th century African uh, theologian, one of the greatest theologians in church history, who was also a man who struggled with sem- sexual sins and temptation, he said the way to drive it out is you need a delectio victrix. That's what he say in Latin. It's just delectio, delectable, delightful, victory, something that's stronger. You need a stronger delight. And for Joseph, it was the presence of God that was his stronger delight. And it was the presence of God that allowed him to prosper. And it was the presence of God that allowed him to fight. He was very aware that God was watching. And so that's how lust was handled. But now let's... Shift gears for a second and think about how lust can be healed. Because I wonder after, so let's pick up in verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and he showed him steadfast love and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made succeed. But Joseph gets thrown uh, down into the prison. And even though the Lord was with him and even though he was successful, you know this wasn't easy. And I wonder if times Joseph is going to be in prison for between 10 and 13 years. And I wonder if the real deeper temptation was while he was languishing in prison was to feel abandoned by God. Maybe the real temptation was to wonder where is God in all of this. But let's think for a second about how we can fight that temptate those temptations. Lust, you know, lust begins with where you fix your eyes and lust ends with where you fix your eyes. So if you're going to fight, if lust is going to be healed in your life and you're going to learn to fight, you have to learn to fix your eyes on something else. You need actually uh, to be double visioned. You need one eye that's nearsighted and one eye that's farsighted. You need to fix the 
far-sighted eye on the end, and you need to fix the near-sighted eye on what is the battle in this moment. So on the one hand, you need a far-sighted eye. You need one eye on the end. So you have to keep in mind the end, that judgment's coming. See, we have an advantage that Joseph didn't have when he was going through this. We know how the story ends. And we know the timeline. We know that 10 to 13 years he'll be in prison. And then he's going to be elevated. And there's seven years of plenty. And then seven years of famine. So we know how uh, the story flows. And we know that one day, probably 28 years later, every single person in Egypt will come before Joseph and bow down to him to beg of their bread. And so we know that one day, Potiphar and his wife will come and they will bow down to him. Can you imagine what that must have been like for them? What that was like for Joseph? You know, Moses doesn't tell us what he did. We see what happens when his brothers come before him, but we don't know this. But this is a reminder that we have to keep an eye on the end, that for Potiphar, the sexual, Potiphar's wife, who was the sexual predator, one day her knee will bow and she will give an account. And what Joseph's life does is for us, it points us to one greater. One greater than Joseph who was also falsely accused, who was also abused, who was also shamed, who was also publicly shunned, who also went all the way down, and he actually experienced true abandonment from God. See, Joseph only in prison felt like he was abandoned by God, but he wasn't. On the cross, Jesus actually was abandoned by God. And then three days later, he rose again and is seated at the right hand. And now he's on his throne. And if we go to Revelation 21, the end of the Bible, it tells us that one day everyone will come before the throne to give an account. And for all of those who are his, on that last day, at last will be the theme song of their heart. See, on that last day, they'll stand before him. And Revelation 21.5 says, Behold, he who sits on the throne says, I am making all things new. And death will be no more. And mourning will be no more. And sorrows will be no more. And he'll wipe away every tear from every eye. And if you're going to fight lust, you have to keep your eye on the end, knowing that one day you will stand before him. And at last... Every deed done in darkness will be brought into light. And at last, every twisted impulse will be no more. And at last, every past failure will have no sting. And at last, every fear will be silenced. And at last, every dangerous person will be dealt with. And all his broken hearts will sing, At last, my lonely days are over. And all the pain will evaporate like a bad dream. See, one of the reasons why I think the song At Last so embodies what real love is is because it gives musical expression to the primal cry of every heart, longing for the day where we cry, At last, loneliness is gone. Fear is gone. Tears are gone. 
And until then, we walk in the steadfast love of the Lord. And so and we have to keep one eye fixed on that because that'll help us take the long view. You'll never be able to battle lust unless you take the long view of life and are committed to what the Lord showed Joseph in verse 21. He was with him and showed him steadfast love. You have to take the long view. You have to know as what happened to Joseph. Uh, eventually, Joseph will rise. And eventually, Joseph will look at those who meant evil in his life, and he will be able to say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. But he won't say that till he's 54 years old. You know, he's 17. And that's going to take 37 years to get there, but he will get there eventually. And you just will not be able to fight lust well unless you have a long view. And that's true not just of lust, it's true of any sin. You know, we want, we want shock and awe when it comes to dealing with our sin. We want one week of intensive focus and then all of a sudden it's gone, never have to deal with it again. We want one and done with all our struggles. But that's not how God works. God work, God's work takes a long view. He works organically. He works slowly. Yeah, I, uh, we're going through these seven deadly sins I'm worried about next week because next week's gluttony and I love food. And one of the things I love is I love barbecue. And one of the things that are kind of humorous to me is things like barbecue, fast food barbecue restaurants. You do realize that fast food barbecue is a contradiction in terms. There's no such thing as fast food barbecue. When we say fast food barbecue, like what we mean is you need to anticipate my desire for barbecue on Friday. So start slow roasting it and or slow smoking it on Tuesday. So it'll be ready by the time I need it on Friday. By definition, barbecue is slow cooked. And that's because the best things in life, by definition, take time. Like sanctification. And barbecue. And if you want to grow in grace and become more holy, it's not going to happen just simply memorizing one verse, then boom, my fight with lust is over. It'll clean up all the mess in my life. Or I learn the right prayer technique, and then boom, all the darkness is driven away. God is very content to work in his church and in his people groups on the scale of generations. He'll work in peoples uh, for centuries. He will work in your life on the scale of years and decades throughout your whole life. And so what matters most is direction, not distance and speed. So there will be some seasons where you can leap uh, in your battle against lust and sanctification. You'll leap down the trail running fast. Some seasons are just slow, steady walk. Then there will be some where you can barely crawl. But all that, what matters most is are you moving in the right direction? direction. See, real life is messy and real life change is messy. There's no formula. There's no secret, no special technique or program that you can put on a schedule and you won't have to do the slow, steady work. It is one continual turning from something and turning to. So if you're like Joseph and you've been the victim of sexual abuse, now Joseph had an advantage that many sexually abused victims don't have. He was strong enough to push his perpetrator off him. But if you've been the victim, one of the things you have to do is just the slow, continual, steady turn to find your refuge in God. His steadfast mm -hmm. 
love. And it's that slow and steady work of renewing your mind and renewing your heart where you slowly, each day, you turn away from terror. Each moment you turn away from shame, you turn away from fruitless remembering, and you turn away from self-protection, and you turn to the one who knows exactly what it's like to be assaulted, enslaved, and tortured, because uh, that's what they did to our Lord. And so we turn away from these things and turn to Him. If you're gonna, if you're gonna fight sin well, you're gonna have to have a long view. You have to keep a, a far-sighted eye on the end that he is on his throne and one day he will make everything right. And then you have to also, though, it's not enough. You have to also keep a nearsighted eye on the battle at hand. See, even though you have to take a long view, there is a battle for today. And one of the things that actually makes lust so difficult is so often lust is not actually the battle. You know, one of you know the books, lust, every man's battle. Many that's not actually the front line. That's not the real battle. Often, lust is just the lighter fluid that gets poured onto another fire that's already raging. And if you're really going to fight well, you have to learn how to diagnose your own heart to know what's really going on that's causing it. I've got six here to think about. So the first is think about anger. And these are just six different things that are actually the real front line of often the battles that people fight that get confused with lust, that lust will just uh, accentuate and make worse. But one, it could be anger. You know, there's many people who commit adultery not because lust is out of control, but for vengeance. They're seeking revenge. You know, I'll show you. How can you neglect me? How can you do this to me? And then one does it, then the other does it. Or who their real issue is not lust is teenage rebellion. There's couples who, you know, a man will look at porn not so much for the lust, but because he's angry because they just got in a fight. So it could be anger. Or there's some people where the, the front line of the battle is not so much lust, but it's a longing to be loved, a deep seated need to be desired. It's not so much lust, but it's that you're enslaved to the deep fear of being alone, and you will gladly trade that so you don't have to be alone. Or for some, you know, it's power. It's the excitement of the chase. It's the hunt. It's exercising power. For some, it's the desire for money or security. You know, sex can be very lucrative. You know, David Pallison's fabulous little book on making all it's called making all things new and it's on dealing with sexual brokenness they have a case in their church in downtown philly where um they found out single mothers in the church were being pressured and these kind of slum lords to sleep with their landlords or they get evicted and and the the deacons went to one of them and and said you need to know that no matter what you will not end up on the street we are your family so if you get stuck or you wonder where the money is going to come from for rent, groceries, don't worry about that. And so the, the way they needed to deal with these things, it wasn't dealing with lust. It was dealing with unjust social structures. Or, number five, it could be a distorted desire to help someone else. Oftentimes in the ministry, you can find in, when there's um, affairs in the ministry, it's fueled not so much by lust, but it can be fueled by this faux messianic complex that the person has about how they're going to help this poor um, person who's in, in this terrible situation. 
Or number six, it could be a desire for relief in the middle of the pressures of work. Sometimes this is how men just mishandle the pressures they're under at work. So while they, they might stop in at the strip club on the way home, not so much that they care about it because this is the way they're blowing off the, the steam. And see, for all of these things, these six different things, they're just keys that lust isn't the real issue. Lust is just the lighter fluid that gets poured onto the issue. And if you're going to fight it, you have to know where the battle is. But what gave Joseph comfort and strength and hope is the same thing that fuels our fight no matter where the battle is. See, the key theme in this whole chapter is that the Lord was with him. And that great reality that he is with me, that I am with you. Think about how that deals with each of those. See, I am with you will speak directly to no matter what your today's issue is. You have to keep a nearsighted eye on today's issue and whatever that is, I am with you is a thing that can help. And I am with you reminds you that there's no private sins. And then I am with you can help push out the sound of the lies that lust feeds upon. And so in those times where you feel overwhelmed and want to run this way, you need to remember, no, I am with you. Or in those times where you feel completely alone, you need to remember, I am with you. Or those times where you're afraid, you need to hear, I am with you. When you feel buried underneath the hurts that someone else heaped on you, you need to hear, I am with you. When you feel abandoned and betrayed, you need to hear, I am with you. So if someone else's manipulative violence has betrayed you, you need to hear him say, I am with you, and it's my steadfast love that will heal you. And so if you are listening to this, and if maybe you feel overwhelmed with the grime of past failures, and you feel guilty, shameful. You feel unaccepted and you ask yourself, well, how could God ever accept me? You need to hear him say, I am with you. You know, he's not shocked by your sin. He might smile at you and say, don't think so highly of yourself. I've loved a lot worse. When you think, how could he ever love me? You know, when Paul says, here's a trustworthy statement that demands full acceptance, Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the chief. I'm the worst. That's not hyperbole. You know, Paul dedicated his life to destroying the bride of Christ. Christ really does not like that. He was the worst of sinners and Christ transformed him. He can transform you. No matter what your struggle is, I am with you actually changes the terrain in which the battles fought upon. I am with you. And if you remember, I am with you, it'll actually bring you to the place where you can cry at last. It will bring you to the place where you can experience the fullness of his grace. And now as we wrap up this, I thought um, this week as I was listening to at last, it struck me that maybe, you know, Etta James didn't write it. it. The song was originally written for a musical, but it was cut out. <laughs> it was cut out. Uh, maybe a bad decision. Um, but it was cut out, and then uh, she ended up singing it about 15 uh, years later. But sometimes in these songs, people speak a little better than they know. So let's listen to the end of the song for a second. 
the Edda actually takes you up into heaven and she brings you under the smile of the beloved one. This is a beautiful image. And it got me thinking because, you know, the reality is that on the last day, after Jesus wipes away every tear from our eyes, we will not be the only one who stands and sings at last. He will stand because before him will be a multitude that no one can number from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. And they will be dressed in radiant white as a bride, purified, made ready for her husband. And he will look over his redeemed people and he would say, at last... Here is my bride, purchased by my blood, purified by my spirit. You are mine at last. And as the catechism teaches us, our only hope in life and death is we are not our own, but we belong to him. We are his. He will say, you are mine. And Jesus' invitation is to cross over. From death to life, his invitation is what was once perverted can be converted. And he says, come now, let us reason together. That says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they can be whiter than snow. Amen.